Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine being an executive director of digital learning research and innovation. I reckon that's about the coolest job title I've ever heard, but then I'm a bit of a nerd. Lauren Sayer has just moved to Melbourne Girls Grammar and she's had the most awesome career helping people think about how to transform learning in the digital age. She's been voted Teacher of the Year by the Information and Communication and Technology Education Group. She's been voted Change Maker of the Year also. And again, in 2020, she's on the Educator Magazine hot list, just like our own Adriano De Prato. I can't wait to talk to Lauren Sayer about all things to do with learning and where we're all going with a school for tomorrow. I'm excited. Let's go. Bill, it's wonderful to be with you again, and I'm really excited about our opportunity to speak with Lauren today. But before we get to that, uh, how is Sydney going? I I hear the Premier has been under fire recent times. Oh yeah, look, I, I think it's just the um, it's it's just the blood sport of our times is, is yeah. for all of the media to pull apart our leaders in various different locations all over the world. What I'm really excited for right now, Adriano, is that you finally got a chance to go and get a haircut and to get rid of that man bun. Well, well, it hasn't happened yet because because apparently every hair salon in Melbourne is fully booked out and probably will be for a number of weeks now. So um, I might have to actually just go to Bunnings and get a chainsaw to get rid of it. That might be the only alternative I have available to me. Click and cut, it's called at Bunnings now. Oh, click and cut. There we <laughs> yeah. go. And, I, I, and, 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 and what a joy that would be for everybody. Let's yeah, talk to yeah. Lauren Adriana. Absolutely. Lauren, it is so wonderful to have you on our show. And I'm really excited about this particular conversation. Uh, I'm going to ask you a, the very first question. And that question is one that we ask all, of course, our, our game changers. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your personal story? How have you gotten to where you are today? No problems. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's wonderful and I'm a fan, so it's great to finally be on and being here in the virtual flesh to have a discussion. Um, My educational story is probably a little bit different to a whole lot of people that I've heard through different podcasts because I'm a child of a single parent family um, and I was the first person to graduate through education Um, my year 12, my mother went back and did year 12 through TAFE, but I was the first person to graduate and go to university in my family. Um, I would have been from a family out in the Western suburbs of Melbourne that would be called aspirational is probably the polite way to call it. Working class would probably be the way that I would prefer to call it because I think it was. And from there, I started my career in nursing. Um, and from nursing went into teaching and thought, okay, I'll never jump into healthcare ever again. Um, I found my first year of rounds in nursing quite difficult. Um, Went into teaching and started in my first year at Sunshine Primary School, which was near my home. Um, And 
found some technology in the early years there back right in the start of when interactive whiteboards were brought in mm. and with that I started to look at how that technology could be used and I worked with African new arrivals and they were new arrivals back when I was a graduate teacher and we used the interactive whiteboards to start to find images of Australian things so that we could start to get some thematic language and understanding of how that worked. From there I went and worked in the department and I think this was an interesting situation where I looked at how can this technology improve teaching and learning in schools and what we found after visiting 35 regional schools and 30 metro schools that were given boards for free is if we do not man match professional learning investment with technology investment we will not see an increase in student results or teacher performance at the time there wasn't the budget to continue on with that so we um i moved on and went and worked for a tech company for a little while went and then i i think fast forwarding through working in industry i got given an amazing job that i would consider a watershed moment which was to head up teaching and learning at the royal children's hospital education institute um, working with 3000 chronically ill students each year who could not be at their schools. So they were kids right across Victoria and around Australia if they had a specialist issue and supporting their education throughout their hospital journey, which could be anywhere from 12 weeks to four years was one of our long-term students that we had. And after four and a half years at the Children's, I moved on to Halebury and worked at Halebury and led digital learning across their multiple campuses. And it's led me through to, I think, an amazing job, which is really around the work that I think Game Changers promotes and School for Tomorrow, which is linking research, innovation, professional learning with action within the school at Melbourne Girls Grammar. And I'm really excited about that. Lauren, thanks for that. I really, I, I want to pick up, if I can, on where you began with that conversation, which is about your family background. There are three people in this conversation whose families all came from quite difficult circumstances. I was talking to my mum about this on the weekend, and, and you know, my, my grandfather came to this country in 1927. He picked fruit for two years before he could afford the uh, the fare to bring my grandmother out from Poland two years later, sort of thing. So it's that 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 commitment to the other which sort of goes all through Adriano's work is, is you know, well known as well. I think that one of the profound changes in education in our time is our commitment to that notion that an education should be for every single child, not just those who use it as a means for gaining and consolidating social privilege. How do we help teachers to operate in a world where we've got the digital thing moving so fast, where we've got disruption moving all over the place, where the volume and pace and intensity of our times is so big, and the ambit of our profession has suddenly got so much bigger as we try and do something that is worthwhile for every student. I think mistakes can be seen as really bad things in education. And I think that this is an interesting thing. And you, you've brought me back to my principal's office in Sunshine Primary School and I was a second year graduate teacher 
And um, Adriano May giggle here. I'd put my foot in my mouth with a parent at some stage in this, and I ended up having to be in my principal's office as a second year grad and saying, look, I'm really sorry. And I was in tears. I was absolutely inconsolable. And my principal at the time, and I've never forgotten, and he said, there's two types of teachers, Lauren. There's the teacher upstairs, I won't mention her name, but her, at the time he mentioned it. And she will never cause me any problems. She is the perfect teacher. She will never ever cause me a problem. The parents love her and she is wonderful. And then there's you, Lauren, and I am crying and crying at this stage. And he says, and you'll give me headaches every time. And he said, but there's a difference. He said, you're gonna go home tonight, you're gonna have a cry, you're gonna pick yourself up, probably talk to a few people, and you're gonna come back better tomorrow. And he said, the teacher upstairs will be wonderful, but she's never gonna get better and better and better and better because she's afraid to make a mistake and she definitely never wants to be in this room crying with me. And I've taken this and I think now that we've got technology that's there, that is easily accessible and what your practice is so much more visible. I think the challenge for us is to make sure that making mistakes and providing a safe space for young teachers is something that we encourage and embrace because I think the stakes are a lot more high now. If I put my foot in my mouth on the internet, so to speak, it could be out there for a whole lot of people and might not ever be forgiven. Now that's ridiculous if you're a young teacher, but I think we have to get to a point where we can forgive and make mistakes because I think one of the dangers of technology at the moment is that we're losing our rights of passage as professionals to make mistakes. Lauren, it's so interesting what you're talking about there and, and you know, talking to the adaptive expertise and the self-efficacy of teachers as the way through what is, you know, any, any, any sort of challenging circumstance around that. If we talk to teachers and we talk to principals, we know this from the, the research we did on character education around the world, when we talk to principals about the things that worry them, the things that keep them up at night, on everybody's list in the first one or two or three items is complaints from parents. So what teachers will tell you is that it's their worry over conflict from pushy parents that will that will curb that courage, that will teach them to operate in the zone of safe and smooth and predictable and yesterday's world, rather than to experiment, to run the risk of running the ire of parents when you deliver something that's well-intentioned but not perfect. How do we help teachers to build that courage I think what we need to do is begin to start the narrative with our parent population around the fact that this is a place of experiment and learning, not just for your student, but for our teachers and for you as parents. This is a place where you should be feeling safe to share parental problems because, uh, you know, I've got many friends who are parents and I'm sure none of them are perfect. I'm not perfect as a teacher and our students want to make mistakes. So I think if you can provide that safe space as a community, we can move forward. And I think that that was one of the things at the Royal Children's Hospital, my teachers had to teach in front of parents every day. You're, you're talking about a very heightened emotional environment mm. where parents will not want to leave the bedside of their child. But we encourage parents to ask, so why are you doing that? And and they would be able to have a dialogue. So we started to have a professional dialogue with our parents to which they saw themselves as 
partners in the learning. So being partners in the learning also meant that they were partners in the mistakes and that was okay as well. Lauren, at the very beginning of this particular um, recording, you spoke about this very diverse educational experience that you've had across your career. And it was great that you've just mentioned again, the Royal Children's, because one of the distinctive elements that I've picked up from my conversations with you regarding your time there at the Royal Children's has been that personalised learning or the use of some form of continuous learning, like remote learning, um, has been central to the delivery model of that particular hospital and educational uh, department for many, many years now. What does this kind of future of learning really look like? And why should we fast track its implementation? I think the first thing that you have to be able to do, and this is tough, and it was tough for me being on the wards at, at the hospital, is ask yourself the really hard question, which is, if students could vote with their feet and not come to your class today, would they still come? Because that was the reality at the Royal Children's Hospital. It is a 100% opt-in environment. And you, you people go, oh, that's amazing. But if you think about it from a logical perspective, if you say you're too sick to go to school and you're in the one paediatric hospital in Victoria, they're going to believe you. It's a pretty good excuse. No one makes you come to school there. It is opt-in. But what that means for a teacher is that your, your learning has to be irresistibly seductive in terms of bringing people in and getting them engaged. And it needs to start not with your wants as the teacher, but the student wants. Yeah. So the first thing we ever do is go in and have a discussion with the students. We go in and we had what was called an introduction and we'd ask them about their needs. What do they love? What do they hate about school? What are their feelings? What are the things they're passionate about? If they could do anything today, what would that look like? And then from there, we start to design the learning around that. Now that's a really big challenge for schools to actually, when you're having your enrollment interview through your school, instead of showing them what you have to offer them, why don't you sit down and have a conversation with the child and find out what are their needs and wants and loves and plan the curriculum around their needs because that is a radical rethink. And the reason we need to do that is because I think what we have in our current system is a chronic problem of disengagement, but disengagement that is passive. I come to school, I clock the hours, I do well or I do okay and I move on and I work through the system. I think our kids are really good at playing the game of school. They understand mm -hmm. I need to be there to mark the role. I need to hand things in on time. But are they there after school, before school? Is there that hunger to have a critical conversation with the teacher about learning? I, I would say that there'd be few schools at the moment that are actually have this active engagement in education. No doubt one of the central constructs of education at the Royal Children's, of course, primarily is the health and well-being of the young person in the care. I mean, they wouldn't be there if they weren't well. What could conventional schools learn from the Royal Children's about positioning wellness and the individual's mental and physical health at the center of any kind of delivery model? That's a really good question. I think the first bit that I will start with is the biggest achievement in my time at the Royal Children's was to include the individual learning plan in the medical record of every student that we worked in because their learning is critical to their health and their wellness. And I yeah. think 
that's that first part that you said of if I'm not feeling well and I am not healthy, I'm not going to be learning. And that, that was the rhetoric at the hospital. It works exactly the same in schools. If I'm not well and I'm not feeling great about myself and not feeling good about where I am in the learning, then I'm not going to perform well at school. It doesn't change in either in either situation. And I think it all comes down to that concept of at the time we called it an individual learning plan at the children's. I much prefer these days the acronym ILP to be individual life plan because I think wellness is not something that finishes when I leave at grade six and go to year seven or finish at year 12 and go to university. It is something that I take with me as a growing document and it's something that I have in my life. I still have my goals and how am I going and where am I going and I think that part of that is making sure that I'm feeling well within myself and an educator and I think the system needs to look at wellness and ask themselves some hard questions and a hard question I would encourage the system to ask is is a job for life in education the best way to promote wellness and one of the things that I look at in this is through my career that we started this conversation in I have come in and out of education now three times it is incredibly hard to leave education and it's even harder to get back into education. Mm -hmm. Once you once you go, you are considered to be out of the flock and then it takes a very brave leader to bring you back into the flock. Now, I've done that a few times and I've, I've put, brought this up to Aitzel before of we talk about teachers leaving the profession because they're not healthy, healthy and they're not happy. What if we worked out sometimes leaving people is a good thing as long as we embrace them back and that it makes them better teachers and i think that looking at our wellness of our student from a lifespan perspective is incredibly important but looking at our teachers as a product of being ongoingly involved in the education system whether that be within the four walls of a school or not are great steps into the future of education Thanks for that answer, Lauren. For our international listeners, AITSL is the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership. It's like our National Standards Accreditation Institute, and it sort of guides us in terms of our thinking about student competencies as well as staff competencies. Really interested in hearing you talk about the whole notion of a whole student and thinking about it holistically. I wonder if we can just jump into the space of assessment for a moment, because we know, Lauren, that if it's not for assessment, it's not real, because if it's not for assessment, it's not real. Our, our students will tell us that. So it's, it's, it's simply a reality around that. And we're starting to think through as a profession what holistic assessment of competencies for students looks like. How should we best assess the competency of digital literacy? And then what does that then tell us about the role of digital technologies within that whole picture of a student? I think how we start with this is having, is co-creating this assessment with students, actually asking them, what is digital literacy and working out what that shared definition is? Because what it is for different people is something that I'm really seeing a lot. Some people talk about digital literacy as being socially media. So being literate about social media and knowing the risks and knowing, knowing where my data goes. Other people talk about it in terms of cyber security. Other people talk about it in terms of media literacy and understanding where on the political spectrum certain newspaper presses or televisions live. 
in order of looking at digital literacy, I think we need to get the definition as a school or as an organisation as to what we want that to be. And then looking at the milestones of how we're going to step and evidence that, because I think that what it is, is if you talk about, we have in our um, Australian curriculum, we have ICT general capabilities. Now that's not digital literacy. They are capabilities that are, that will enable a student to be successful in a digital world in terms of being able to save, get a file structure and those sorts of things and their general capabilities. What I would say these are, are complex competencies and digital literacy is a complex competency that we need to look at in depth and unpack. And I think what we will find is that it's going to have different strands. It will have a media strand, it will have a cybersecurity strand. It will have a social purpose strand of how I use digital to improve the social purpose and the, and the, the needs of others and how that works and how can I use this for good in terms of a moral aspect as well. And I think that developing this involves having conversations with students and providing the time and the space in this area and moving it away from the tech and, I'm, and I work in tech and moving it into what are the purposes for all of these things and how can these mediums make me a better person? So none of this is peripheral, is it, Laura? No, it's all central. And I think it's one of the things that amuses me as we talk about digital literacy and all literacy needs to be digital these days because if you talk about an average day in your life, I would challenge anyone, unless you might be on your holiday with your book in on a non-internet connected, I, I do believe I did five days in Cuba once with no <laughs> internet, so that might have been non-digital then. I still was taking photos though, I was still there ready. It is probably modern literacy for our new life of how we work and by saying it is just digital, I think gives us an excuse sometimes to opt out. And that's a really dangerous thing. I, I hear a lot of teachers say, I don't do Facebook or I don't do Twitter and I'm not into LinkedIn and I don't know what a TikTok is and of how this works. That's not a reason to opt out. That would be like me saying, well, I don't really like maths, so I'm not going to do maths in my curriculum. And we know that's not an excuse. Yeah, this is really interesting conversation. So, so much of the research that comes out of organisations like Foundation for Young Australians, Year 13, and of course, the World Economic Forum have placed digital literacy as the number one skill uh, that young people are going to not only require today, but particularly to thrive in a world from 2030 onwards with, with so much that is uh, growing in that particular space. I've always been a firm believer that the foundational literacies of, of uh, today's schooling for, for tomorrow's world has to not only include, you know, your literacy and numeracy, but also financial literacy, enterprise thinking, science thinking, and of course, the digital competencies that you just mentioned there. How can we convince school leaders and systems to elevate digital literacy so that the young people in our communities who they default to believing are digital natives, which is which, is a, which isn't 100% correct um, on some levels. How, how can we convince them to, to believe that it should become a foundational literacy to help young people to thrive in their world for tomorrow? 
I think it's it's a radical change in the way we deliver and design curriculum and the way that most schools deliver and design curriculum is we look at our learning outcomes that are in our key learning area we devise, we devise assessments that measure that and then we link through and if we have any time at the end we'll look at all that other stuff that other stuff being general capabilities complex competencies such as digital literacy when I worked at the Royal Children's Hospital, we did something different when we designed. We started with gen what we wanted as general capabilities and complex competencies, and we built those first. Then we added curriculum content and subject knowledge. And that meant that we started at the right compass point. So if we were looking at geography as an example or history, we would make sure that we included historical literacy and media literacy in there, um, making sure that we understand where our research is coming from in terms of citing resources, making sure that we spoke about fake news if we were looking in humanities, same in our science, debunking myths of how this works. but. That requires you to start with the core competencies as a school that are you that you value and take it out into your planning. And what that means is it is not just putting them on a piece of paper. That's the easy bit saying, well, we believe in these things. It is sitting in planning meetings as groups and working out how do we start with this? How do we start with our moral purpose of digital literacy or social justice and build out into our curriculum. And then we start in the correct spot. I think at the moment in our curriculum, we're getting so tied up in the assessment of the outcomes that we forget that the central outcome actually needs to be what do we value as a school? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I feel that we're so fixated on assessing standards as opposed to looking at ways in which we, what you're talking and describing is ultimately habits, habits that become intrinsically part of that individual uh, and that are transferable in so many ways. And I love how, how, how you spoke then about working backwards. That's your desired outcome. That's your desired result, that these young people acquire these necessary skills uh, that are transferable. Uh, they're also part of their character formation and their attributes as much as it is about, you know, the learning and the cognitive uh, and, and then working backwards uh, that way. I want to talk about another particular area that that you have been extremely passionate about and quite inspiring. And that is, um, you've been a, an educational collaborator with uh, PwC's 21st Century um, Minds Accelerator Program. And, and it's about inspiring the next generation of creative, entrepreneurial and digital women, especially in that digi tech space and STEM initiatives. How can we empower more women in this particular space? I think the first thing is, and um, I work through the PwC program, I worked with Code Like a Girl and I still work with Code Like a Girl and Ellie Watson. And you cannot be what you cannot see. And what Ali did right from the start, before she had an entrepreneurial startup going, was develop meetups where women who were in the industry could meet and discuss and share and network together. And that's incredibly important in the digital area. I know that when I go to IT conferences as a female, even in education, which is quite a female dominated industry, I can be one of maybe three women in the room who sit in that technology space. 
And that is incredibly important that we actually can see each other. I would ask every school to critically look at how you were doing this throughout the curriculum, but more importantly, how are you doing this through your employment? Do you have a female technician that when your students come up to get their computer fixed, that they can see and be part of? I know that PLC in Sydney, they actually employ and train their girls up at the school. So when they leave and they're in university, they're not flipping burgers at McDonald's to pay. They're doing tech support during the day. So yeah. what those girls see every day is a role model in technology, supporting them and helping them with those things. And I think that's incredibly important is, yes, we need to model it through entrepreneurs and big programs like Code Like a Girl that are out there and organising meetups, but we also need to do it in our employment practices at schools and making sure that our students see every day that females can work in tech because that imprinting starts a lot early. So whilst Ali is absolutely amazing at working in that secondary onwards space, we need to make sure we have role models early on in life with technology. And I don't think we're there yet. Again, this is a really interesting conversation that we're having and where we would like learning communities to continue to evolve towards. One of the areas, of course, is being a responsible citizen and, and how we can actively contribute to the flourishing of our entire community. And I suppose what we're talking about also is this notion of diversity, equity and inclusion. And, and you have been a huge champion in that particular space. Also in, in the local area of, of the Western suburbs where you and I both, both reside, uh, that's been really important to you. How can we continue to support school systems and young people in them to understand the importance of diversity, equity and inclusion with reference to being a responsible citizen? I think what we need to remember when we're working with students is, and my old um, director, the executive director of the Royal Children's Hospital, Glenda Strong, she used to talk about how we're not just breeding the next generation of leaders in this. There's also the next generation of social activists and philanthropists. And if we can breed an area of students that are not just great learners, but they work in service of others, we will have a successful society. And it's one of the things that I look at a lot is how can we breed that I suppose, engender that thought of philanthropy and giving to others as part of we do it. And the way I do it is to model it myself. So whether it's working on the board of Duke Street and making sure that we've got funding in the Western suburbs here for technology and Create Make Shine, which is a program that we've got going here, or it's working with students or working at the hospital or these sorts of things. How can we do it? It's making sure that we walk the talk ourselves. So I think it's really important that students see that you are very active. Some schools do great programs in this in service from, from a very young, young age. I know that when I was at the hospital, there was a group of students and schools around that instead of doing work experience, they did service experience in year nine and year 10. So they still did some work experience, but they actually worked in service. So they studied carefully of who they want to support and they worked out a program and they pitched. 
So we would get groups of students come and pitch to us in an entrepreneurial way on how they could support. The important part about all of this was it couldn't have just been money because that wasn't it. I think there's we need to make sure that it's not just who has the biggest check in this space and it's about how we can service. So I think in terms of being, we need to be entrepreneurial in terms of building things, but also giving. Lauren, I just wanna embarrass you a little bit here for a moment because, hey, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. So much of what you're saying here picks up on all of the research that we've been doing into this space about the, the what's next of an education for character competency and wellness. The first thing, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I really want, like so many of your answers are holistic in nature. You don't atomize things, you think about them and then you identify where they're placed and you integrate it into the warp and weft of, of, of what it is that's happening. So that's the first thing that I observe. The second thing that I, I would observe is that you have a model for what it is that you want to do and then you reference back against that. And so much of that model is built out around the third thing, which is that, that notion of a life of purpose, which at the end of the day is where all of this comes from and that that purpose, fourthly, must be selfless. It's gotta be directed towards other people rather than yourself. So bravo to you for everything that you're doing in the way in which you're putting these sorts of things into practice. I would observe a fifth thing about what it is that you're doing. And that is that you have the courage to step forward and up into your work. You're not just thinking about the status quo. You're thinking about what's next. So I want to take you to a space of what's next, which is about the role of micro-credentialing, which is something that, if you like, challenges our very notion of what assessment is. Because again, in learning from you today, it's really clear you don't put, you're not one of those binary people, which is who's sort of like all for assessment or all against assessment. You're thinking about what's the right sort of assessment. Is micro-credentialing the right sort of assessment? Uh, is it the way forward? And how do we help people think about that rather than some outdated, cruel 19th century anachronism such as a public examination? I think it is the right step forward, but I think we need to be really careful in this space of making sure that we don't end up with a badge or a credential for absolutely everything. And I think what we need to make sure is that everything is open, transparent and can be justified so that if, if, if someone asks you, how did you get that credential, you will be able to talk about not just the skills and the content, but the dispositions that you've gained in those through that program that has enabled you to get that credential. I think the big potential in credentials is not what we're seeing in these early stages, which is everybody's coming up with their own brand of credentials and we've got this credential program and that credential program and how that works. I think what we need to see is being able to look at a group of core credentials that we work with with industry and we work with with our social justice organisations as well and we start to look at how can we partner with them and so that when you look at a credential it's not just a Melbourne girls or a Halebury or a Royal Children's credential it is a credential that is in partnership with the work that you are doing and together with someone else that, th that third group of people of yourself, the school and this third or fourth group, we've actually come up with a clear set of 
definable outcomes and dispositions and as a result of that we can demonstrate them so i think it's incredibly important to be able to show the worth of it through that but i think we need to actually really knock down the wall of a school as an institution that can only give credentials and we need to work with industry in this space and in industry in this space it it could not it's not just the businesses it's our social justice organizations in a Catholic system, it's working with our church and our faith-based areas as well. It is actually looking at what are the dispositions we want moving forward. And if we can make that and define it, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to actually celebrate and reward that with a credential and be able to show it? Because I think what we're at a danger at the moment is getting badge crazy and you will have a badge for this and a badge for that. But when a student comes down to that interview, whether it be at a university or a job, and they're asked, so you've received this credential and that, what does it mean? They need to be able to ask it. And the only way they're going to be able to answer that question is by having it really clear and by co-creating it with the students. If we don't co-create it with the students and the organisations, it means nothing. We may as well have a scout badge. So, the, so the, I'm, I'm thinking about the badly sewn badges on my on my on my Cub Scout <laughs> on my Cub Scout shirt back from the 1970s. Back down at I think it was um, First Rose Bay um, Scout Group. But um, uh, I, how do you help people make the value judgment, therefore, about what's worthwhile? It seems to me there's a bit of Goldilocks with this, isn't there? It's not too much, not too little, but just right. How do we help? people to recognize that what we need to credential is the right stuff, it's the good stuff. And, 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 and secondly, how, how do we help them to see that there are some things that they might not be credentialing or recognizing or validating in their work right now that is worthwhile, such as character dispositions? Because I know that when we speak to a whole bunch of teachers um, around the world, they love the idea of putting rigor and method to character disposition and the assessment of it. But there's a whole other group of teachers who find that very, very challenging because it's not an equation. It's not knowledge. It's not something that is in their minds tangible, even though you know, the evidence shows it can be tangible. How do we help people make these value judgments? I think what we first need to do is make sure that the schools that we are working in are very strong in their values and, their, and what they want out of, a, out of a school. And it's something in a new school at Melbourne Girls that I've looked at and I'm very proud of, that when I went in, one of the interview questions I asked, and my principal there, Dr. Tony Meath, speaks about what she, I, I asked, what is your vision for the girls at Melbourne Girls and what do you want for the future? And Tony was able to, effortlessly articulate that vision and that's what you want out of a school and I would encourage that people need to ask their schools that they are going to work in what it is because it's that 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 articulation is where we start is what you want from your learners and I don't think any principal says well I would like them all to be able to do calculus and I really would like them to be able to leave with strong grammar I've never heard a principal talk about those sorts of outcomes that they want their mm -hmm. graduates to be. They usually will talk about the things that you see in the mission and the vision. But again, it'll go back to my earlier point of how do we put that into the curriculum planning? The way we start to do that is through credentials. We actually start 
every curriculum planning conversation with that vision, mission and those credentials. And how do we do that with teachers? I think we, we start to get experts in what this looks like. And again, it's going back to industry. So whilst I was at Halebury, we looked at, well, how do you credential entrepreneurship? We went and partnered with the Wade Institute, part of Melbourne University, the Wade Institute of Entrepreneurship and said, well, what are the key dispositions and skills you look for in a successful entrepreneur? And then I think if we're moving forward, talking to philanthropists and talking to different areas, if you start to talk to industry and go, what are those key skills and dispositions that you have, that's where you'll find them out. And I think that that's incredibly important is to actually start to ask what does what does a successful person look like? And I think the other place we need to do is go back into our school communities and our alumni. And if you've come out and you've made this amazing startup or your business, actually go back and say, we're looking to credential this. What are the key dispositions that you have that you feel helped you to get where you are so that it's real? It's not, And I think when, when teachers, teachers have really good bulldust detectors, and I think that if we start to ask teachers really carefully, well, what does this look like? And we've gone and asked our system and we've gone and asked industry and these are the areas and this is what it looks like. As soon as they feel safe and they know it's real, they'll be happy to jump on board. But if it's just something that's made up in an hour brainstorming session where we all sit with a whiteboard and go, okay, what does good character look like? And put that into a rubric, there's always going to be people that aren't part of that program and therefore are they going to buy in? I don't think they will unless we've got a rigorous process. So so a rigorous process and some sort of research base that I think is in re- really, really important with, with this sort of stuff, Lauren. And, and it's, you know, it's, I'm, as, as you're sitting there talking about, you know, I've never heard principals talking about, you know, grammar and calculus and so on. Unfortunately, newspapers and politicians love that sort of talk, don't they? And, they? and they really, really enjoy a discourse which is reductionist rather than aspirational. They, they enjoy something which is binary rather than holistic um, in nature. And hearing you talk about outcomes in that way and the way in which they're all put together, it's, again, so much of our work through Game Changes and School for Tomorrow has helped us focus on those graduate outcomes. I want you to listen to the following six really carefully. The notion of a good person, the notion of a future builder, a continuous learner and unlearner, a solution architect, a responsible citizen and a team creator. Which one of those do you want to do some more work on in your own career moving forward? I think a solution architect in terms of how this works. Of actually, I think that what we have at the moment is a discussion in education around all of the problems. And as you mentioned, the media are always telling us what's wrong. Our literacy levels are too low and what's wrong? And what we really need out there is some solution architects that will come up with new solutions. But I think the second part of that is, and then be brave enough to try them. I think it's great to sit and talk about it. And I think one of the great things is architects design, but they also see it through. So they will see it all the way through. Um, They'll design, but then they will check on their designs and make sure it's there. And I think that's incredibly important. So 
I think in my career, I want to be able to dream big in that solution area, but also do big so that we've got good designs and blueprints for the future. It's uh, always a delight catching up with you, Lauren, and I really, really appreciated uh, your time today and this conversation. So much of what you continue to share speaks at the heart of learning communities that understand learning agility and have and, and understand how to pivot and adapt and be flexible in a world that continually flexes and is, is unpredictable uh, and, and so uncertain. It is a delight to have you on our show. We wish you much success going forward at Melbourne Girls Grammar School. It's a school that I know uh, inspired so much of what my work was in the final few years there at Marceline College. And I know that you're going to be a massive success there. And uh, we wish you all the best going forward. Thank you very much for being on Game Changers. Thank you so much. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.